Hello, and welcome to another awesome episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show, where we have conversations with inspiring entrepreneurs, investors, and experts in a huge variety of topics, today being no different. In this conversation, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Brett Kopp, co-founder of Remind 101, and also co-founder of a new company called Omela. If you haven't heard of Remind 101, it is a billion-dollar company, humongous success. It's used by something like 70% of all U.S. public schools. There's tens of millions of active users consistently in the top 200 most used apps on the entire App Store. And now Brett is taking his lessons from having built such a successful first company to Omela. I'll let Brett introduce Omela at the beginning of this episode, but briefly, it's a payments company for alternative use cases in the education space. This conversation covers what Brett learned at Remind 101 that he's applying to Omela. We discuss the founding story of Omela and how he discovered the problem in the first place. We'll discuss his philosophy for building companies based on, again, the successes of Remind. We discuss how he got so many A-list investors to back Remind 101. And as always, if you've listened to the Lewis and Kyle show before, you'll know that we cover a whole lot more. Brett is extremely high energy and extremely fun person to talk to. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, I'm going to switch over to it now. Brett, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. I think we have a lot of good stuff to be talking about today. I'm excited for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Let's start with Omela because that's what you have been kind of in quiet for several months or I think even years potentially building, you know, the, the, the in the dark room, talking to customers and now you're kind of out of a point where you're like, okay, this definitely works. People really like it and it's sticky. So what is Omela and why did you start it? And then from there, we'll kind of dive into all sorts of things. Well, the way I like to explain Omela to my 70-year-old mom, who's not very technical, she's actually my like core tester when you do ever user experience testing. Yeah, I run her through it. I love her, by the way, but she's not exactly technical. Is to imagine if Venmo, GoFundMe, Google Forms, DocuSign, and Eventbrite had a baby and that baby was all in one, super simple, and only for this weird niche of education. Uh, and when I say weird, I mean, most people don't realize how unbelievably massive that market is. And that's a broad statement, but specifically payments and money flowing through the school system in the United States for small things like a ticket sale or large, thing, large things like a $10,000 tuition payment for a private school. It is enormous. And I have data to support that. And so Omela makes it easy for them to do everything. We manage their back office. They could do tuition, subscriptions, ticket sales, permission slips, digital signatures, donations, fundraisers, all in one. And then we save them three to 4% of credit card processing fees. I know it, sound, it doesn't sound very sexy, but broadly, like the education system tends to be quite anti antiquated from a technical standpoint, like 10, 15 years behind. And I know that from my first company, they're just a lot slower to adopt, adopt technology for some reason. So that is what Omela is. And yeah, we have been working on it since... August of 19, we have been grinding on this thing, talking to literally thousands of customers, heads down. I want to talk about the the birth of this idea. So I know, you know, one piece of context, like you said, your previous company is obviously a very well-known app in the education space. I think it's consistently top 10 in the app store in the education category, like top 200 consistently, all apps. So just major player in the education space. Was this a specific problem that you, while you were running that other company, were like, oh, this is a total problem. I want to solve this one day. Or is your narrative that you had kind of exited daily operations of the other company and were like looking for problems in the adjacent market because you're like, okay, well, I'm a good founder in this space, obviously. Which one is it closer to? Yeah, by far the first one. So I'm not someone who had, does like a top-down McKinsey analysis on a market. That is not who I am. I'm someone who talks to a ton of customers based on gut intuition and validate it. And what I kept seeing with my first company, Remind, is that hundreds of these teachers would be trying to collect money 
and mom and dad would be signing physical permission slips, sticking it in Johnny's backpack. Johnny would walk to school, give Mr. or Mrs. teacher a check and a permission slip, and then he or she would have 10 grand sitting on their desk. Maybe that's a little bit much, but usually it was more like two or $3,000 in raw cash. And then half the kids forgot the permission slip. And I kept seeing that, and there was friction. And I believe that a big role of software and technology is just to remove and eliminate friction. And I actually tried to build this at Remind, but we just failed miserably. I really, really care about the problem for two reasons. One, I just think it will help teachers. Like at the core, I think it will help educators save them time and money. But I also not only think I know it is just an enormous financial market that not many people are looking at um, just because all the data that we had at Remind. So it all came from talking to customers and seeing it in the first time at Remind. That's kind of like a cliche thing. To, to like talk to customers, do you mind like quantifying that? Like, is this like a month? You did thirty interviews, oh. one a day, or is this like six months, five a day? Cliche well, means like, everyone. Like everyone likes to say they do it, right? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Every, I talk to customers, but like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, did I? You know what I mean? Air quotes. Like, I've talked to a customer. I've talked to more than two. Yeah. But so this is probably what was it like for you. There was a single thing to know about me as a human being from at least my career identity is I am extremely obsessed with building empathy and talking to customers. So what does that mean tangibly? For Remind, I spoke to 200 customers in six weeks, one-on-one, either via Google Meet at the time, because this was back in 2011. I don't even know. We didn't even know about Zoom then, or in coffee shops. So it was all the time. We also had customers on the East Coast, and I was in Pacific because we were in Palo Alto at the time, where, by the way, I listened to one of your other interviews with Andy Johns. He was one of the first people we ever met in the Valley, and it was a good talk. I listened to it. I would wake up at 3 a.m. because we had customers on East Coast. And so it was, what is it? It was 6 a.m. by them. And I'll try to answer support tickets because I can learn faster. And so with Remind, that was the case before we wrote a line of code. With Omela, I spoke to 500 customers one-on-one before writing a line of code. Once we wrote that line of code, or you know, figuratively, we had a few lines of code. But once we had an MVP at that point, since that point, I probably spoke to like 2,200. The first probably 1,300 of those, and this was in a span of about I don't know, 18 to 24 months was customer development. I wasn't actually trying to sell them something. Customer development could be another cliche word. It's trying, it's having a hypothesis and trying to identify if there is a very big and broad problem for a niche, but big group of people. Niche meaning in the beginning, it only needs to be a big problem for a few of them. And to this day, no one can actually use Omela until they talk to me. Like we literally gate them from using it until they talk to me, which I know sounds Sounds backwards. Now, there's a few reasons we do that, which I can explain. Um, some people listening to this could say that's stupid. Why would you spend all your time doing that? And also YC's model, of course, is just to ship, 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 break things, break things, like um, ship something and like iterate quickly. <laughs> and there's two ways to skin a cat. This is our way. We wanted to feel like we understood the problem better than anyone. And writing software and code is very time consuming and expensive. Even with all these low, no code tools, if you want to build something custom like we are, we have to. So we really wanted to feel quite strong about it. So that is what I mean by when we said, like, we talk to customers and I still do it every day. I'm still answering support tickets every day. Have you, it was a meme that I saw on Twitter recently, and it was like a video of a teacher, uh, like greeting her kids goodbye. And she was patting each of them on the back with a sticker. And on that sticker, it was like, remember to sign your permission slip so that the parent would see it. And so this is solving that problem. Yeah, plus more. But that's exactly right. Like if <laughs> you're, in, you're in real estate, right, Kyle? Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. So when you sell a house or, or if you help a customer buy a house, they probably use DocuSign or equivalent to sign something because it is a big purchase and it is a legally binding signature. 
Or if you owe Lewis 10 bucks, uh, you would Venmo him money. There's all these digital ways to transact on the internet. And for this very big vertical, that way does not exist in any scalable fashion. There's many reasons that's an issue, but it just doesn't exist. And there are billions, like hundreds of billions of dollars in little microtransactions, even happening in public schools. No one knows about that. Why would anyone know about that? Unless you're a teacher collecting money, uh, who would think about that all the time? We think about it a lot because we talk to so many teachers. So in those initial customer interviews with teachers, what were the glaring problems and and what was confirmed by the teachers? Because like you have a lot of experience with their mind. So I guess you knew a lot of things about this problem beforehand. Was there anything that was new? For a reminder for Omela. For Omela. When you Oh. Yeah, there was a lot of new stuff that we learned. I don't think I realized the breadth, like the breadth at which of how big this problem was and how many things that they need to do. Remember, I kind of jokingly said there's these five big companies that probably have like a five hundred billion dollar market cap if you add them all up. DocuSign and Venmo and GoFundMe, yada yada. Those are each massive individual companies that go very deep and do a lot of things. But all these teachers are trying to do those. The problem is they would have to use five or six different, like each of those services to get done what they wanted to get done. And it was hugely inefficient. And then they also had all these very specific problems that relate to a teacher that we help. Like a Remind is an example, which isn't Omela related, but we built this thing called Office Hours. You wouldn't build that in in WhatsApp, right? You wouldn't say, you can only message me when I'm teaching from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., but for teachers, it's not necessarily appropriate for a kid to message a teacher at two in the morning. And so there's a lot of custom niche stuff that we're building in this vertical space that's very big. So I didn't realize, to answer your question, how broad and deep the problem was. One other thing which you didn't ask, but I think it's important to share, Remind solved two problems. Well, present tense as well. Um, we make it safe and easy to communicate with students and, and teachers, uh, excuse me, for teachers to communicate with students and parents. Safe, easy, safe, easy, which basically means we make it easy for them to reach all the people they want in a frictionless way. That is the problem. It took us a very long time for Omela to identify what the problem was, which is teachers have, or educators in general, they have way too many services they use, which equates to time. They spend too much time managing things. And then the second one is they're incredibly fee sensitive. They're broke. Like, and I don't mean that in a like rude or crass way, but unfortunately teachers aren't paid very well. And when I say teachers, it's broadly educators, could even be school administrators, PTAs, clubs. Uh, they're very thoughtful and co- conscious about the money they're collecting and fees. Those were the problems. And as soon as we identified and figured, the, figured out what the problem was, and we really felt like you could see it in their heart. And I could talk more about this if you want, but like, I think that there's what verbally comes out of someone's mouth. And then there's the inflection and the way that they move their eyes and they respond to you and they say things. The latter, I think, says much more than what verbally comes out of their mouth. And when you see that time after time talking to so many of the similar customer sets, it's like, wow, I think that there's something here. Now, I really gained a lot from listening to your interview with Eric in prep for this. I'm very much at that stage of my business. And I was kind of saying this before we'd started, right? Like I know how to do a lot of things in a niche, but it's like, what is the person and the problem and the pain point? And what I use the podcast and a lot of other channels to interact with people who are potential customers or no potential customers, want to understand potential customers. And for what I was selling from like September to very, very recently, it was like a, not like it was emotionally apathetic, right? That, oh, that would be cool. That would be useful. But since listening to your podcast with Eric, like I've really like reframed because you went in that podcast as well, very, very deep on like 
this is my customer journey. This is how I structure conversation. This is like what would happen between me and another human at a coffee shop. So like, do you mind elaborating more on what you mean by like the words and the eyes and like the, the, the importance of that in terms of like how that shapes your business strategy and like what, what's actually worth acting on versus what feedback isn't worth acting on? Yeah. At a high level, let me start high level and then just work my way down. And so I have a very simple framework for how I operate my life from a career standpoint because there's multiple versions of me, right? I'm a father, I'm a husband, I have my personal, I know you're into help too, like I have that part. But from a like a, a career standpoint, it's to have a hypothesis, talk to customers, identify a big problem and solve it with simple a simple product. I know that sounds, that's super cliche and overly vague, but literally the entire framework for how I operate in my business exists with that. And it gets very specific, but that means that there's no end in sight. It's not like I'm on a train and then the tracks are gonna end. I'm just constantly, iterating on this, like constantly talking to customers. Okay. So what does that mean specifically? Uh, let's just say that I got introduced to Kyle uh, via, Lewis, via Lewis and uh, I meet Kyle for the first time and Kyle gets, Kyle's an educator. He runs a micro school and I can explain what that is in a second. He runs a small school. It's essentially a small business, but for education. And Kyle's like, I don't really know why you're talking to me, but Luis introduced you. So I'm just going to talk to you and you're, you can kind of tell they're hesitant. My primary job is to build trust with them first so they understand that I'm not trying to just directly sell them anything, but I'm genuinely trying to understand their problem and not screw them. Generally, unless there's a very warm intro, people are just kind of like hesitant to get on the call with someone. And that's really important. And so literally what I do when I get on the call, it's like, okay, so Lewis introduced us. By the way, it is Lewis, right? It's not Luis. It's Lewis. Cool. Uh, we have an employee named Luis. And so I keep making the confusion. I'm sorry, in my head. So when I'm first introduced to them, like my primary objective is to build trust. And the way that I do that is to say, Lewis just introduced us. I know I'm some stranger from the internet. I appreciate you talking to me. And so first, that's just acknowledging that this is just kind of a weird thing that we're just introduced and strangers don't know each other. Can I just give you 60 seconds of context on who I am and why I wanted to speak to you? Yes or no. And of course, they always say, sure. And then the first thing I'll say is, number one, I have done my homework. Just like you guys did your homework. You listen to Eric's podcast. I also listen to your podcast. It's just the right thing to do. Uh, it, it You just have to do the work. You just have to listen. It's like, I read about ABC School, super interesting that you started this. Uh, I started this company called Remind. I have a bunch of learning disabilities, yada, yada. And then I realized that all these educators have problems collecting money. So I'm on this quest to try to understand problems for educators. That is why I wanted to speak to you. Does that make sense? I usually pause there to make sure that it's not just me pitching them. If and no one's listening to this, I just punch my fist to kind of like drive home the point that it is not a sales call. There's a difference between product user fit and product market fit. Ask Andy Johnson product user fit being that I'm trying to find a problem for a very specific set of customers that I want to solve something for measured by one, they freak out very high net retention, very high retention, which usually isn't even statistically significant because there's only 50 of them, right? You can't really measure that, but they love it. They're displacing all these different services and using it all the time. My objective is to not necessarily sell them yet until I genuinely know that I understand that there's a problem. And once I know that I'm not trying to, to like just be a sleazy salesman and sell them, they open up. And so once I understand that and there's trust, I was like, okay, great. So now that I've given you background, do you have any questions? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Tell me about your school. And it's quite broad. And they're like, well, I started it 10 years ago and yada, yada. And then it just kind of goes down this funnel. And so as an analog, like I'm a mouse, there's cheese and there's a big maze. And my job is to shrink it. And I just follow all these little steps. Now, that isn't like... Um, there's no like very specific structure in my head, but things that I think are interesting, I will just follow. They all kind of lead the same way every time, which eventually comes back to, well, how do you collect money? What do you use for tuition? 
Do you ever have to collect money for permission slips? What systems do you use? How much time does that take you? What I'm looking for is not just to validate a belief I have because I want to believe it in my head. And that's dangerous for entrepreneurs, right? I believe in this so much. And I've had to catch myself on this. And my brother, too, is my co-founder. I believe in this market and helping these customers so much. Sometimes I have to check myself and say, like, wait a minute, do I just want this to exist in the world when there's not a problem? Because I want it so badly. Um, but good signs, just to, I know I'm blabbering here, but to answer your question, good signs are, one, their eyes are popping out of their head when I say, what systems do you use? Oh my gosh, Brett, it's so frustrating. I use QuickBooks invoicing, then I have to collect money via check. Literally, by the way, two nights ago, I was talking to a woman named Kim out east, who's a booster club t uh, um, administrator. She has 30 booster clubs across her school. She physically has to go to the bank every week to deposit multiple checks and come back. This is like a 60-ish year old woman, mother of two, wonderful woman, who's spending her time physically going back and forth and doing it. Eyes were popping out of her head, explaining all these different systems that she's using. And so there's all these cues that I'm picking up on. I'm like, wow, there's a real problem here. Also, it's, it's valuable to know that there's a real problem if they are paying for other software, a lot of it, or if they're just using their time in an inefficient way. So those are the types of things that I look for. Um, and then the last point is people don't like to hurt other people's feelings. Like you, you both are nice and most people would never want to say like, hey, Luis, your, your project that you're starting, it just doesn't help me. I do not want that. That's super valuable for you to know, though, because you don't have to waste your time. And it very clearly then would help you. Shit, I said Luis. I meant Luis. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry if I swear. And I don't know if that's kosher here. Uh, but you want to drive to that. So how do you actually get them to trust you enough to do that? Let me give you an example. When I'm talking to them and they're like, yeah, I can see myself using that. Immediately in my head, I'm like, bullshit. You're just trying to be nice to me and you don't want to hurt my feelings. And so literally what I will say to them is, hold on, I get the sense that that's not really a true statement. And I'm honest with them. Like, I, I know that you might not want to hurt my feelings, but the more direct you can be with me, brutally honest, the better. So tell me again, like, do you really think that that would help you? And you got to pull it out of them. They're like, not really. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. That was so helpful. Because now I can either pivot and see if there's a different problem that we're interested in and helping them with, or maybe they're not our customer. Stop wasting their time and move on. I want to ask um, who in... And I know that it's probably different by organization, but let's just take like a public school system. Who is the person that you can talk to that can have the largest like broad adoption? Like, can you sell this to individual teachers or are you trying to sell it to the whole administration? And which of those ways of selling has been more impactful and valuable for you and for the customer? It's very hard in schools to have a SaaS product where you charge a subscription for and go to a district and charge them money. I don't like that business model. I know it because we built it at Remind. It's really hard. They're just like slow and antiquated. And it's also hard when you have a consumer who uses your product, 100 teachers at a school, but then a, a principal or a district that you charge money to for that product that wants different things. That's hard. And so what we're finding at Omela is if this is my fist, for those of you who are watching, if this is a school, there's a periphery around the school of clubs and sports teams and boosters and PTAs and nonprofits that are like, well, my brother, who's my co-hunter, he calls like little planets orbiting a sun. Like the school is like the main thing that collects money, but there's all these microtransactions happening around them. Specifically for our business, if it's relevant, one of the difficult things is, you know, when you deal with payments, there's, of course, safety and compliance issues, and you have to do what's called KYC, 
which means know your customer. So whoever's collecting money, you have to KYC them. That's a ton of friction to get a customer. Like with Remind, it's- You have to KYC the parents. What's that? So you have to KYC the parents. You do not have to KYC parents. You have to KYC the person collecting money. So let's just say a a parent-teacher association wanted to collect 100 grand for a donate or like a fundraiser, which we've done multiple times or more than that. They have to KYC. What's your name? What's your email? Sometimes even what's your SSN? Imagine the friction for that. Remind on the other hand, it's like text this to 81010 and like just start. Way less friction. So it's a lot harder. However, there's a lot more transactional value and margin there. Because any time that you insert yourself in the flow of funds, there's a lot of very interesting ways that you can make money. So to answer your main question, it's not necessarily me going to a district and saying, I'm going to charge you $1,000 a month per kid or whatever, $20 a month per kid. Uh, we only make money on transactions, actually. There is no SAS fee which is kind of weird because most companies have SaaS fees that sell to schools, but we don't have that. We just make money on payment transactions. Well, that was a question I had written down here. I just wrote down the letters GMV. Is there like a, at present, and then in the future, desired, or so at present, is there a current like minimum merchant volume for this to make sense for a club to adopt or like for you to be able to take them on? Uh, and then like in the future, do you want to get that like as low as possible? So like, I think, right, to contextualize and make it specific, like the activities I did in high school, Right. So like I did a speech and debate and uh, one of our friends we actually had on the podcast has like the most popular speech and debate SaaS app for all high school students or one of the most popular. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We got to, we got to have you talk to him, but he, I think he's in like, he doesn't have remind numbers, but again, speech and debates niche and remind is school and school schools, the school's the main thing going on in school and debates, a thing that happens in some schools, but point being like a debate team, you know, a couple travel tournaments a year, maybe 10,000. Like, is that someone who would use it? Or is that like small scale? Like, where's the scale financially where this is worth someone's effort? Yeah. Excellent question. So we support customers that will collect five to $10,000 a year. And then we support customers that collect two to $4 million a year. Now, financially, of course, somewhere right in the middle around 500K to a million dollars is really lovely for us on our margins. Um, our retention is really wonderful. But the product can support either one. If you just think about it though, if I collect $2 million a year, you are essentially a small business and you have an immense amount of complexity. So let me give you an example. For the typical PTA, or I'll just pick like a micro school because uh, they're the, the most simple to explain. They on average would use seven to eight services, QuickBooks invoicing, Venmo, check, cash, physical PDFs, Google Forms, some document signing software, and then some version of a fundraising software. All eight. And then none of them talk to each other. And for like five of them, they have to pay them SaaS fees. And then maybe for one of them, they have to pay them transaction fees. And we come in and, you know, this concept in technology, of course, is like bundling. We bundle it. And it's super simple in this delightful experience. So we won't say no to anyone. Now, I've had VCs and we've raised a little bit of money. I haven't announced it. And remind, we've raised north of $60 million. And I'm happy to talk about that if you want. I just don't think it's very relevant. But they were like, you can't keep talking to customers. It's not worth your time for the ACV for $10,000 customers. We'll make a few hundred bucks on them. They are technically right when we go into super scale mode. It will be impossible. I'm the only salesperson in the company, by the way. There's no one else, just me. We only hired our first onboarding and success and support person a month and a half ago, and she happened to be a customer because she loved it so much. But because we're kind of in this kind of like transitional stage of we have found wonderful product retention, we have a clear business model, clear unit economics, we're starting to grow in a pretty healthy way. We're just starting to think thinking about like ramping and scaling, but eventually I'll get to the point where I'll probably remove myself from conversations and the product will just be self-serve unless they're very large customers. 
I'm kind of skeptical that if we close a two to $3 million GMB account, that they're not going to at least have one conversation for a sale. We're replacing their operating system. I have questions about the alt school, micro school movements, just broadly to like add some context to that. Like, let's give some color to, to what that is. Maybe some like big name examples and like places, cities, this is happening. Like, is it like a hundred students in like a rural Pennsylvania and like, or like that, or like make an Amish culture. I know that's the first thing that comes to mind for me, but like we had, or is it like online? Cause we had like Victoria from Prisma on the show, however long ago, if you're familiar with them. And it's like, what's this, what, what's the, like, just, it's kind of a hard question, but like, what's this movement? Like, why is this a movement? And why does that like coincide really interesting with what you're doing? Okay. Whoever's listening, you should listen to this because it's important. One, there is absolutely a movement happening. Most of the people who know about it are either driving it, meaning they're a school of some sort, or they're a receiver of it, meaning they're a parent or a kid. High-level metrics, 3% of every kid in the United States is educated in some type of alternative education, homeschool, school, alternative school, online school, 3%. It is my belief that that number is going to be 10 to 15% in the next 20 years. Generally, when I talk about a micro school or an alternative school, and this comes from talking to hundreds of like literally thousands of these. So I'm not one, but like I'm quite empathetic. We've talked to a lot. Generally, they all have this philosophical belief that a parent should have the choice for where they send their kid, whether it's public school, private school, some weird homeschool, alternative school. And those don't have to be weird, by the way, but just different maybe is a better term. Second thing is usually these types of schools all have this philosophical belief of self-directed individualized learning where the kid is the kid is the one that is driving a lot of the learning instead of a typical top-down model where there's like a teacher for nine hours a day telling a kid that you need to learn these things. Probably the best scaled example of this is a network of micro schools called Acton Academies. They tend to be anywhere from three, which is small if they're just starting to maybe up to 10 or 20 kids. They're small. They're all usually for-profit or, or non-profit, but they charge tuition on the low end five grand a year, sometimes on the high end 15 grand a year. So you have to pay money for it. It is expensive. And almost unequivocally, and I visited these schools, like I went to Texas to see these schools. I've physically been in these schools. I talk to them all the time. The, the common theme is that kids love learning. Like they love learning. And I think that that's like one of the most important things in education, even though, of course, like I'm building transactional software to help with payments. Right. And I get that. But I have a young son now. He's he's nearly two and he's going to be going to school soon. And I feel like as a dad, like the most important thing I could help him do is just love to learn because it's such it's so scalable. If we think about Eric Jorgensen, he would use the word leverage. It's so leveraged. He's not going to remember necessarily like quantum physics or math or like what, what his teacher taught him about this specific thing. But if he loves to learn and he knows how to learn, that's very valuable. And I do find with this sort of movement that's happening, these kids love to learn because they let the kid explore a lot of the things that they're interested in. So again, Acton Academy is one of the bigger ones. There's 250 of them in the world, uh, all over the United States, but all, all globally. Another big one is called Agile Learning Centers. They're a little bit of a different model. There's about 50 of them across the country. And then there's all of these smaller ones popping up all across the country. Vela Fund is another really interesting, it's, it's more of like a nonprofit entity that invests, I think they've invested in over a thousand schools. So that's what's happening with this movement. It is growing super quickly. It is very grassroots. There is no like single top-down place that explains all of these things that are happening in this sort of micro-schooling movement. 
So that's why we're really excited by it. And then specifically as it relates to Omela, they don't have any good software. They're very busy and they're very fee sensitive and we could help solve all of those problems. I have like a lot of things that came to mind when you said that. It's going to kind of random them off because I just noted them down. So one that's funny is that the friend of ours with the debate software was homeschooled. Oh, interesting. So that's just that's just funny. And then uh, I want to ask you some questions about school choice okay. uh, in general. I spoke uh, the other day with Jason Bedrick from Heritage, if you know him. Um, he said he's met you once. Oh, I know Jason. Yes, I do. Yeah. So I, I met him at like a Jewish networking event yeah. of all places, of course. Yeah. And then I was in the DMs and this episode was scheduled. And I was like, oh, do you know Brett? Because, you know, with the space he's in and the space you're in. Uh, and then I don't really have like a any degree of personal relationship with David Perel. But I'm curious if you've talked to him at all. Because like, I feel like he's a really good advocate for a lot. Like he's very value aligned with you in terms of like, like, so like, are you familiar with David at all? Yeah, I've Twitter? read a bunch of his writing. I don't know him personally. Okay, I feel I know Eric has interviewed him and vice versa, I think. So like it would be interesting to talk to him. But like his big product is Rite of Passage. It's like a kind of like trying to help adults rediscover like a love of learning. But like he's even reinvested his writing school to like now have like a high school version, hmm. which is really interesting. It's like he's kind of like down. I don't know. He's modified it. So the point is like he's someone I think of who's like sharing the message of like teaching adults to love how to learn. I don't know. I feel like at some point there'd be a really interesting overlap there. Yeah. I love that he's doing that. My gift is not that. So when I say my gift, I don't mean to say that braggadociously. I think every human on the planet is really good at something and really bad at a lot. And I'm bad at a huge amount of things, which I could speak to. My job, I believe that the role of software, specifically in education, I know we're talking about education a lot. It's a very big vertical, is to help reduce friction to start and scale. That's what I do. Like I build software that helps either make more efficient, save money, make money, augment, like help save time. Um, and then also build relationships like Remind is really, if you kind of take, peel it back, if, you know, I'll give an example, like in the early days of Remind, I think when you guys even were using it back in the day, we had a parent that was uh, deployed in Afghanistan in the war who every few days would be messaging on Remind with his kid's teacher to know how his kid's doing in their education. That was like an aha moment for me. Wow. We built something really cool. We built this relationship so that parent knows. And of course, there's an immense amount of data that talks about increased parental engagement leading to, leading to higher student outcomes. So back to your point, I love that David's doing that. And I love that all these micro schools are popping up. I view what we're doing as sort of like an enabling factor to help them grow. I can give one more metaphor to what we're seeing in technology. If Twilio, Twilio, the messaging, you know, uh, API communication company. If yeah, Twilio, SMS. Yeah, SMS. Yeah. If Twilio didn't exist in 2011, we'd be pretty screwed. Like, I don't know if Remind would exist. We send probably a billion messages a month now, a billion, one billion. It all started with 10, right? Um, but we would be screwed. Stripe is an, an uh, is another enabler. Like without Stripe or a Braintree equivalent, like I don't think we could have. You know, we tried to start the company seven years ago, and there's multiple reasons that we failed with payments and and at the time Omelette didn't exist. But like Stripe has enabled us to do all of these things. We do not want to be in the business of building payments infrastructure. It's not what we're good at. So with Omella, we sort of want to enable all of these SMB equivalent organizations to do what they're really gifted at. So that is what we love and what we're really good at. And I also believe in what like David's doing. Like I believe in that too. I love that answer. This question in the context of that answer might be less important because I, I think that it might fall out of your wheelhouse of, of what's important to you or what you think you're good at. But I, I think a lot about the way that education is set up today as a result of like an end goal. So like 
you know, Horace Mann created the common school and the normal school to like have people be able to work in factories so that they would be funneled into this very specific way of being. My question for you is like, what do you think the end goal for these micro schools is? Like what, is it a knowledge worker? Is it just a a generally curious student? Like what do you think that is in today's world? Because I I can't visualize it because there's so many different ways to be, you know, a productive member of society today. Yeah, that's a good question. I have asked that to a few of the school leaders and pretty much all of them have said the same thing, which is they just want their, the students to come out of it to love learning and to love, find their passion to do whatever they want to do. That was a poorly phrased sentence, but they just want the kids to be able to find what they love. Now, I don't want to come on here and say that all public schools are bad. Like, I think a lot of them are absolutely wonderful. We work with tons of them. I am a product of the public school system. But I think a lot of these micro schools exist because there might be kids with learning differences that have different needs that like different things that this works better for. As an example, like I have a bunch of learning disabilities. I really struggled in school. I almost dropped out multiple times. And the whole reason where mine exists is because I had such an emotional pain from start from like starting and scaling in school. But I have this teacher that totally changed my life and she believed in me. And so like a lot of the reason that the software that exists today is because I had these people who really who really helped me. But the point I was trying to make is it was very hard to keep a kid with all my learning disabilities and energy. Like I'm 35 now and I have, I'm jumping off the walls a bit. Imagine me 15 years ago, sitting in a room for nine hours a day. How many times can I like try to write my name in cursive? Drive me crazy. But if I had something like a micro school that would like, Brett, what do you want to do today? <laughs> like, uh, let me give you an example to be specific. We support a micro school in Colorado. They take the kids kayaking and for their science, they go to a river down the street and they're learning about the aquatic system and fish. And like, they also get to use their body and move. That would have been better for me because I can move my body and like run around and like learn by doing, but other kids might not want that. Other kids could be sitting in a seat and enjoy that. So long way of saying, I think it's helping kids find what they love to do. I think that, I think that's what it is. But I'm not the one in those driver's seats with those those locals. Right. I should introduce introduce you to some of them. They're really wonderful. Is writing your name in cursive over and over again a sign of some sort of? Because I used to do that over like all day throughout school. I've written my name probably a hundred thousand times. Yeah, maybe it was some like Freudian egotistical thing where didn't have anything else to do. I got bored. After <laughs> I would draw boxes. But my dad used to tease me that he thought I should be a doctor because my handwriting is so bad. It still looks like I write like I'm five years old. I think the metaphor, though it's kind of, again, cliche in, I guess, like maybe the, the podcasting entrepreneurship, whatever, circles, but like the micro schools and alt schools are just kind of unbundling as well, right? Like they each have their own, a lot of them have their own value skew. It's like, this is a problem with the school system. This is like a, an alternative that we've created to optimize for this specific situation, well, the cool thing about it is it, it is a market. So I believe in capitalism. Now, I think that there's good versions of capitalism, but I believe in it. And many of these micro schools have a very similar belief. So like, hey, it's competition. Microsoft versus Google AI. Who's going to be better? Who's going to win? And they're going to get the revenue from it. Just as an example, I, in today's day, and if we listed this in 10 years, that's the hot thing going on right now, broadly in tech. But for this school, they're basically saying, I'm not happy with where my kids are going right now. I can do better. I'm just going to do it. And... You either put up or shut up. It's like you starting this company. It's either it's binary. It will work or it will fail. 
you might have a little bit of in between where like you're kind of chugging along, but it's a market. There's a customer that has money and they're going to pay you money for that value, which I love. I love that because it's almost like a startup. It's like, we know that what we're building with Omela is really valuable because people are, we're making money out we're growing. We have incredibly good retention. That is proving that we have built value. Of course, there's all, all of like the emotional feedback we're getting from customers, but that's the part that I like. It is a market. It also means it's very hard. Like if you taught in the public school system for 10 years as an educator, and then it's like, okay, I'm going to start. You have to learn how to do quote business. And a lot of them don't know how to do that. And it's not a knock on them. It's just, they've been, they're wonderful at educating. That's kind of, again, where we come in, where we sort of help them operationalize all that. Cause that's what we're good at. That like back office stuff. And again, it's not the most, it's not their gift. It's not important for them. It's like, they just need to be just good enough at it to operate. Yeah. And actually and no, anything else is kind of irrelevant or overkill. Yeah. It, it actually coincides directly to our vision, which is to help these local organizations get back to leading. Like that's what we want to do. We want them to focus on what they're really gifted at. Um, and you know, I'm jumping around here, but as a leadership principle or like a belief system, I think that I, this is the second time I mentioned this on the podcast. I believe that certain people or all people are really good at a few things and bad at a lot. And the sooner that, at least for me, I was able to identify what I'm gifted at and weed out all the hundreds of things that I'm bad at, everything elevated, everything got better. But it took me a long time to do that. I had to hit my head figuratively against a wall a lot to figure that out. I want to do some less structured bonus questions. I mean, we still might go for 20 minutes, which wouldn't be a longer bonus round, but kind of just transitioning at least for now out of some Omela questions, though we could talk about that in alt schools all day as well. We've talked a lot about your learning styles and again, like your strengths and your weaknesses when it comes to learning and thinking and and all of that. I heard you say on Eric's show that you were like an early super adopter of Notion. What was it about Notion that like worked with your brain and made it like not be making you like bang your head against the wall, just like it worked, it clicked. Yeah. So we run our whole company in Notion. I know everyone does now. I don't know how early we are, but the second it came out, we were using it. It was, it was this like aha moment of like, oh my God, I get it. Notion is our operating system. And I think one of the reasons that we liked it so much is because it's really hard in software to create something. If you're not watching this, I have my hand as an X and then I have my other hand as a Y something that's really simple, but super powerful. It's really hard to do that. Salesforce is extremely powerful, but you need to get trained on it for six months. And Venmo is really simple, but it can do like one or two things, which is, you know, a peer-to-peer payment. It's very hard. So up here, Notion figured out how to do something where it's really simple to use, but extremely powerful with this concept of blocks, which of course has been talked about at length in the internet. And so we just started using it. It was so intuitive that it was like, oh my God, like this just, replaces so much. It makes us so much better, so much more efficient. It reduces friction. It was just delightful. And other than like some speed issues, which they fixed and said, and we actually have some very similar philosophical beliefs, <laughs> not to say that we're anyway as good as Notion, even though we do totally different things. Notion is, I aspire to be as good as that product. They're really well. I was going to say, as, aspirationally, the narrative is, should be the exact same for your customers. Exactly. Yeah. That you just had. That is our, I just explained our product strategy, which is like as powerful as powerful Salesforce, as simple as Venmo, figuratively well, speaking. Well, you discover it and say exactly what you said, word for word. Oh my goodness. This is our new operating system. Yeah. That's exactly what you just said. Yeah. Well, and that's your goal. That is the goal. With a, with a different set of customers, of course, and a different problem that we solve. Yeah. Notion such like a, even their templates, even their templates are an inspiration. We have templates, hundreds of free templates for our customers. And Microsoft, Microsoft actually pioneered the concept of templates. 
years ago, like 10, 15 years ago. I think Notion just like the the fundamental of building blocks and then also with their beautiful design and UI laying over that really just it just changed things. I love it. It's delightful software. If there whoever created it, I don't know his name is on listing. Ivan. Ivan, yeah. Great job. <laughs> That was one thing that I noticed about your website was how, uh, for lack of a better word, beautiful it was. Who um, is the design head for Omela? Well, no, I can't say I am. So there's two parts to Omela, right? There's like the product and then there's the marketing website, which are very closely tied together. So we have my brother and I, my brother runs product operations and a ton of other things. And he has an extremely high IQ way smarter than me. I'm not self-deprecating. I'm saying that as a fact. And then I have a really high EQ. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you kind of pick apart our company, the people that we hire, the way things look, it is a yin and yang of both. Because when you start a company, you can't just solely rely on statistical data when you have 50 customers. It's not stat sig. You have to rely on some of your intuition and gut until you get much larger and you actually have data to A-B testings. So on the external part of the website, I pretty much own that. I spend a huge amount of time caring about it. And really nailing the messaging down to a point of like, when you look at the H1 and the H2, I have bled, figuratively speaking, over making sure that we articulate value to who we care about as fast as possible. My brother, and of course, he definitely gives input. I don't know if he cares about it as much as I do. My brother, on the other hand, owns all of product. I think I'm like reasonably good at it. I more so articulate customer problems. He's very good at that. We also have a really great head of engineering and they kind of go hand in hand. We don't actually have like a head of design. We have a wonderful designer named Gio, but we don't have a head of design. Like we all kind of think of ourselves, we're not designers necessarily, but we think about the customer problem because we talk to them so much. Example, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Every single day in standoff, we do not do the typical scrum of what did I do yesterday? What did I do today? I think that's a waste of time in my opinion, because we handle everything asynchronously via Slack. We talk about customer problems. We literally talk about three to five problems or learnings from what we learned to customers to diffuse empathy throughout all of our team every day. I love that. I was gonna, I was hoping that you could the your relationship with your brother. Can you talk about that for a little bit about building companies with your brother? What that's been like and what he means to you? Yeah, I mean, he's my brother first and my co-founder second. There's an important distinction to that. He is really, really good at a few things that I am really bad at. And I think I am really, really good at a few things that he is bad at. We have these blind spots. One of our old, our old head of marketing, her name is Mina Bilar. She's wonderful. You should have her on the show, actually. She once said, "Is like with if if like one of you guys aren't there, the company is like off tilt. So like if I was gone for whatever for leave or paternity leave uh, for a while, then the company would start thinking a little too logically and maybe not listening to customer empathy enough. But if it was all me, I would go m- way too much on gut intuition." and not tracking data enough. And so the relationship's really good. Of course, we've been through a bunch of hard stuff. Like there was points of remind where we were adding 300,000 users a day of which 85% of them retained number one in the entire US app store, adding a ton of like an insane, faster than Google, Facebook, WhatsApp, et cetera. Immense amount of emotional and physical pressure. But from that, we've worked together for so long, we know, we know how to work together quite well. The other thing I'll say is that he's really gifted at which he wasn't in the beginning because we didn't know anything. As my late father would say, we didn't know shit from Shinola. When we started Remind, like I have an agriculture degree from Michigan State. He went to DePaul. We did not go to Harvard or MIT. We're not brainiacs, but we care a lot and we work our asses off. We have like Chicago Midwest roots. And 
we didn't understand the concept of growth accounting, which Andy, I'm sure, had talked about. I didn't listen to the full show, but you've heard it before. Thinking about retention and engagement, activation and acquisition, and understanding once you build a product on top of that, using data and metrics to make informed decisions. And when we were starting to scale up Remind, a lot of the people, like Andy, actually, or you know, Social Capital, one of our earliest investors, they invested a lot of time in David and I, specifically David, in helping us understand how to track metrics and what metrics matter and move the needle. He's really good at that. And I'm, it's, not, uh, it's not that I'm bad at it, but like he's way better at it than me. We've alluded to Andy a couple times here. Andy's, again, had a very successful career in Silicon Valley, kind of very focused on mental health right now. Uh, someone else, a mutual, you could say, that we've had on the show in the past, who I spoke to in prep for this, is Matt Redler from Panther. And he said a question he had for you is, or maybe a question he wanted us to ask you or thought would lead to an interesting conversation. Maybe he's already had the question answered for himself. But how did you initially get your, like you said, not a Harvard grad, not an MIT grad, not a Stanford grad, uh, but you know, for Remind specifically, you had a lot of uh, legitimate A-list investors on your early rounds. What, how did you build a network in Silicon Valley to get like Naval Ravikant's John Doors of the world to like get into your first company? Because that's something that a lot of people are going to be like, how on earth, like that's, where, how did that happen? Like, how did you get through the first door? Yeah, I'll tell you that in a second. So when David and I got our first check for $100,000, we were in Matadero Avenue in Palo Alto and some guy, uh, I won't mention their name, is like, right, here it's a check, I believe in you. My brother and I looked at each other and was like, what the, I don't know who's listening to this, F, what the F if you have kids around, what just happened? Who gives, they gave us $100,000. That's insane. We ended up raising over the few years, $60 million. How do we do it? We failed miserably in the beginning. So I don't want you to think like, oh, we just like really good at this and we figured it out. We're good at it now because we've been through the game before. It was miserable. There was two reasons why. One, we didn't have anyone using our product. Like when we started, we didn't have anyone using it. Once we started to grow though, I think in the beginning we're adding like 5,000 users a week or something. It was like pretty damn good traction. Um, We still failed. Why? Like, I remember walking into Sequoia and one of the partners there laughed at me, which sucks in itself. And I'm not going to mention who, but we like, we were still failing. Why? The reason is because having a great traction needs to be combined with understanding how to tell a story. And one of our investors, this guy named Manish, grabbed me once and he, he basically explained that I was telling the story very transactionally. Remind makes it easy to send a text message to students and parents writing 5,000 users a week. Can I have money, please? Like, idiot, what am I thinking? Like, I didn't know anything. I was 21. And he flipped it and said, like, you have this really unique story in that you started this out of a place of pain. I literally did. I had such a pain because I felt stupid in trying to get through school because it was so hard for me. And I had this teacher that totally changed my life. And I thought, like, well, what if every kid in the country had that? That's how I started my story because it is the truth. And you could see the effusiveness in my voice and my eyes. That is the why. So there was a very clear, raw why. That led to then... Starting Remind. Remind makes it easy. It's a, Remind what it is. It's a messaging app for communication education. Bam. Traction. So the arc of the story and getting good at telling that story combined with ridiculous growth. We would not be able to raise that capital if we were not adding 300,000 users a day and retaining 85% of them. Like it would have been a pipe dream, but we were. And so that helped us. The other thing that helped us is we got into a Magic K-12, which was kind of eaten up by YC like uh, Jeff Ralston and Tim Brady, they were the former presidents of YC. They started it and they taught us the game and they got us in the network. It was kind of, it would be hard. We didn't know anyone because the entire, all of the Valley is built on like a trust system of, of who you know, fortunately or unfortunately. I think AngelList has started to decentralize that. 
Um, and so the mixture of traction, the ability to tell a story a lot, and then uh, Magic K12 slash YC, that helped. There is the last part, which is a little softer, but important is that confidence. I'm obviously speaking to you very confidently now because I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. But it is from grinding and like getting punched in the face figuratively so many times and laughed out the room and gotten said no to that I can speak confidently to it because I failed so much. So that's another part. It's just shot on goal. I think we've just done a ton of it. I've seen if Kyle's jumping in there. Uh, I don't know if this was Eric or Matt or me, but a, a big piece of your conversation with Eric did revolve around Yiddish, and we definitely did not break his record for Yiddish in the conversation. I could, I'd have to go pretty aggressively here to, to try to catch up, and I probably don't have the vocabulary for it. But has uh, Judaism been an important factor in like the values of your company, your career, or is that kind of like we've been talking about earlier, like a segmented, segmented, a seg- segmented thing in terms of like you have your health and you have your family, maybe it's just like the Jewish family values and there's not like a Jewish career value. It is not important to me from a religious standpoint. I have no problem with religion and other people's beliefs in it. I went to a conservative Jewish school growing up and then I switched to a public school and I had a very bad experience in that school. I just didn't like that, the, the way it was structured. And so for a long time, I was quite against it. Um, it did structure my value systems. Like I'm obviously Jewish, you're Jewish. There's a set of value systems growing up in Chicago in the early 1990s that people have where you work your ass off, you're honest, you help, you're thoughtful, you don't have an ego. And that's not only in Judaism, that's a lot. Like when I played football, uh, like when you grow up in Chicago, it's kind of that Midwest simpatico where there's a somewhat like, like a blue collar, hardworking mentality. And I think the people that I met in school, in, in my Jewish school, had a set of value systems that were very good. Those did, those did transcend. Do I go to synagogue? No. Um, do I pray to God? No. Do I have a set of value systems that was informed by a lot of the people I met and interacted with? Absolutely. Yes. Now, specifically how, like, what that means on a more like literal level, my life like the way I structure my life and my time, it's my health, physical and emotional. I'm failing right now because I have a cold and I'm trying to, to fight it. But that means like I exercise a lot. I try to eat healthy. I want to be here when my, when my son grows up and hopefully my future kids and I want to try to be the best version of myself. Then it's my family and then it's Omela. And the reason, and I might have discussed this with Eric, but I feel strong about it. It wasn't that way at Remind. Like my, my now wife, then girlfriend, um, she was, she was second to remind as was my health. I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's the truth. And thankfully she stuck with me, but I didn't know at the time, I didn't realize that remind will come and go. Like I'm on the board and it's doing really well. Yada, yada, it's growing. But remind will come and go. Omela will come and go. I think it's gonna be a long time. We're gonna be building this for a while, but she will be forever. And she's what really matters. So that's a long way of saying religiously, no value systems. Yes. This is a new question that we've been asking on the Lewis and Kyle show, but it, it's really gone well. Um, so do you have a breakfast meeting or a coffee meeting that really was a turning point for you where you had an aha moment and does one come to mind? And will you share it with us? With a customer or with an investor? Either, or it could be personal, doesn't matter. Oh, Wow. That's a very broad question. I've had a lot of coffee breakfast meetings. We've asked some, he started out saying he's done 2,200 breakfast meetings just in like 2011. Yeah, I can give you two. So. One is from Remind, one is from Omela. I mentioned this before. When I, I kind of alluded to this, this guy, Manish, where he, he said, he kind of changed the framing of my story. 
literally the man grabbed me. Like I'm not, I'm not making this up. If you're just, if you're listening, I'm pulling my hand to my chest, I'm squeezing and I'm turning. And he's like, what the, what the fuck? Like you talked to 200 customers. He didn't believe me. He's a very like direct in your face guy. And he's become one of my, my best friends. And I was like, yeah, isn't that what everyone does? And he's like, no, like in the Valley at the time, it wasn't as common of a thing. Like a lot of that lean startup stuff was just starting. It was like engineers would just, or, or technologists just go build product, but think they knew, but not talk to customers. That really shook me because there was this person who was super successful and smart. And not only did he invest 15 grand and save our company, by the way, many times your mind almost died many times. Like I went home that Hanukkah or maybe it was for new year's I'm like, Oh my God, we have another $15,000 on our bank, which was like three or four months of runway. Uh, and I was broke at the time that really changed the trajectory of my company. More importantly, arguably like become one of my closest friends and mentors. Then there was another one, which is just three days ago. This I mentioned her before this woman named Kim, She's this elderly woman in out East who runs a booster club. That's just like a wonderful person. Let me give you an example. Her kids are grown up. They're like 30 and 35. One of them is deployed in the military. She runs the booster club for her high school. Why? One, it's to make her not go crazy, constantly wondering where her son is in the world because he's in the military. And two, it's to give back to the community. And the reason I'm telling you that is because like she's really doing important work in her local community. And she literally, when I was explaining, you know, Omela and all the things it does, she was like, oh my gosh, this, I'm done. For, it's like she saw a ghost. She was so excited. And you might be thinking like, okay, you know, chill, Brett, like it's payment software. How are they that excited? She was, she is. And those feelings, like, even though, you know, I'm speaking about all this money we raise and how revenue is growing, yada, yada, it's hard. Like you guys know, those starting companies are really hard, but when you get those, it's like, okay, we're on the right path. I think that's a great place to uh, sign off coming back to a exciting customer and kind of a big theme of this conversation. Where should people who are know someone in the alt school world and the boosters world and a club that does five to $10,000 in GMV per year. And it's just like, it is a nightmare. Like where should they follow you? I know you're on Twitter and LinkedIn. The company website is Kyle alluded to is very well designed. Yeah, uh, or a million dollars or $2 million. We'll take that too. Uh, one, you can email me. Uh, you can email me, brett at omela.com, B-R-E-T-T at omela.com. You can go to omela.com, check it out. Um, follow me on Twitter if you'd like, even though I don't post that much unless it's about customer stuff, surprise, surprise. But just email me. Like I'm very accessible and I like talking to people, especially if they're customers. Amazing. This has been a blast. Thank you, Brett. Thank you both. It was nice to meet you. That wraps up this conversation with Brett Kopf from Omela and Brett Kopf from Remind. He's the same person. I just said his name twice for no reason. Three takeaways from me, actually four, and then we will be moving on to the next episode. One, the importance of talking to customers in order to find and understand the problem and also like understanding your customers. This is so, so, so critical. I cannot say how transformative it's the most simple advice in the world. Talk to customers, but hearing Brett drill it into my head and also listening to his conversation with Eric Torgensen and research for this and the several weeks leading up to this conversation, it has been so transformative to my business to spend time just where my only goal was to have conversations with people who would potentially be customers without any objective to sell them anything, which literally like what's going on in their lives, what's going on in their businesses, what problems do they have? And that led me to all sorts of new problems, to finding messaging that was way more effective when communicating with potential customers really just made a humongous difference. It is the most simple advice in the world. Talk to customers, understand them, find the problem. Your life will be much easier. It's so simple. 
it's uh, really made a big impact on me to do that. So that is the lesson, number one. Second is Brett's self-awareness. Brett's very, very transparent with his, you could call them learning disabilities, dyslexia, ADHD, and has been very deliberate about using them as advantages and also building systems around them, knowing what his strengths are, knowing what his weaknesses are, recognizing the strengths of his brother and his business partner, and again, the corresponding weaknesses. And that's been really helpful, I think, for him for building effective teams. Third takeaway from me is a quote, not all necessary software exists yet. That is such a good mindset. There are so many opportunities in the world. Everyone thinks that every idea that needed to be tried with software happened in the 90s and like the dot-com boom and bust. That's just so inaccurate. Obviously, there's been many, many billion-dollar companies spun up since then, and likely many more will come into existence as well. Not all necessary software exists yet. There are still opportunities if you talk to customers and get, get out and do things. Fourth takeaway is just caring about the problem. Brett clearly has so much passion for helping this group of people solve the problem in front of them. I think that's the only reason that he is able to continue to have so much endurance and so much energy for the work that he's doing is that he just genuinely cares about helping people with this problem solve the problem. That's all for me. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out Omela if it's interesting to you. Follow Brett on Twitter, connect with him on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I hope you had as much fun as we did. I appreciate you for listening. If you want to know about the next episode, make sure you are subscribed wherever you are listening and say, hey, leave a rating, review, share with a friend, all of those good things. Hope you have a great rest of your day. If you can't wait another week for the next episode, check out the backlog. There's like 150 awesome episodes just like this one. And otherwise, I will see you in roughly one week with a new one. Thanks so much for listening. See you later. Bye-bye.